0: If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We'll be today in Matthew chapter 6. I don't know if all of the home groups are happening tonight. You'll have to check with your leader of your home group. Um, I do want to say, though, that if you go to the Johnson's home group, the one that we usually host at our house, tonight it's actually going to be at Cody and Jade Trump's house. And if you need directions for that, I know that um, some, I think everybody, well, not everyone knows how to get there. Um, so Cody's number is actually in the bulletin. You can text him and he he can drop you, a, he can send you some instructions. So same time uh, for that group. We're just gonna meet over there uh, this week. So, all right. So um, Matthew 6 verses 16 through 18 is our passage that we're going to be pressing into this morning. It says, and when you fast." wanting, like Sam prayed, to worship you by seeing you in your word. So at this time in this service, Lord, I pray that our hearts would just look to you through your word. And I I pray that you would speak to us, that you would challenge some things in our lives that need challenging and convict us in places that we need to be convicted. And I, I pray that this would be helpful for your people, that we would grow because of your word Thank you, Father, that you have given us this light, your word, and by it we can, we can see the path, we can know the way forward. And I pray for your help this morning. I pray that I would be clear, especially with the gospel, especially with the greatest news in all of the universe, that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. And I stand before you as one who knows that truth. My sins are many, and I have hope because your mercy is more. May that be clear to us this morning. I pray, Father, that you would work among us. And Lord, I know that there are many who are still in great pain and suffering this morning, hurting, uh, lingering pain of loss. Um, Lord, you know who they are exactly. And Lord, I pray for them this morning. I know that there are some right here in this room today that are feeling the pain of, of grief and loss. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, encourage them and give them strength and help them to turn to you in their lament and in their, in, their, in their pain and turn to you by faith and find you to be the comforter that you are and bring healing and even a renewed sense of joy that perhaps right now can't even seem possible to them. By your grace... And for your name's sake, we pray all of these things. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few weeks, uh, all over Shadron, people are going to dress up as things that they are not. Some will be mummies, even though they're not dead yet. Others will be ghosts. Some will dress up as a movie character or something like that. Uh, some will be so creative that you won't be able to tell what they are. So you have to ask them. And then right at dusk on October 31st, just like the deer, there are going to be movement all around Shadron. Many will take to the streets, going door to door, asking for candy, and even threatening people that if they don't give them candy, they're going to trick them. That's what's going to happen. What a tradition. Uh, I'm, I'm Yeah. What were you dressed up on as that day? Uh, you know, since it's actually Reformation Day, I was thinking I was, I'm going to dress up like a monk and I'm going to go church to church, nailing papers on doors. <laughs> that was my first thought anyway, but then for legal and social reasons, I've abandoned that idea. Plan B was to dress up like a Christian. But then I studied this passage and I decided I'll just stay home. <laughs> You know, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, but the seriousness of this passage can't be ignored. The verses are Jesus' continued confrontation with the religious world, and his primary charge is that we need to stop dressing up as Christians and instead start being ones for real. We need to stop dressing up like people who love other people and who love God and who live a, a disciplined life for the pursuit of godliness and actually be people who love God and love others and live a disciplined life for the sake of godliness. Look, look back with me at uh, verse one, Matthew 6, one. It says, beware, this is the verse, this, this, this verse introduces our text and all of all of the passage, even all the way to verse 18, even though he's covered a lot of ground since then. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven that's the general warning which sets up all of Matthew 6 1 through 18 beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by others beware of merely merely dressing up as a Christian doing things to be seen by others that's and not with the motivation to please the Lord. Beware of Christian costume parties, as it were. Matthew 6 goes on to list or goes into detail with three different types of con- costumes that you could possibly wear in this way. We've been studying them for weeks. The first one is the, co- the costume of a giver. That's verses two and through four. And then there's the, the prayer warrior costume. That's in verses 5 through 15, and that's where we lingered the longest, mostly because Jesus didn't just teach not to do that. He also taught us how to pray. He stopped and gave us a model or a template, and we've been pressing into that for several weeks, I think seven. Today, we're on the third potential costume, and that's dressing up or dressing down like one who is fasting. And fasting is refusing to eat for religious purposes, and what is in view here is doing that in a way that makes you seem before others to be very pious. In all of this, Jesus is warning us not to dress up like a Christian, but to be one for real. So why does Jesus hit these three themes, giving, praying, and fasting? I think there are two big reasons. One is that these three comprise the outward parts of the religious life of a Pharisee this was their go-to when it came to like how to live a life for God. They would have talked about these three things, giving, praying, and fasting. So naturally Jesus had to address them. But in a bigger sense, these three are representative categories for how we live the Christian life. If you think of it, they cover how we love others, how we serve others, how we love God, and how we discipline our bodies in pursuit of godliness. Giving alms, I think, is representative of how we steward our resources and our money and our stuff for the sake of other people. Christians are called to live radically generous. So Jesus teaches us how to do that and how not to do that. And we're safe to think of giving alms as a representative category for how we help other people because of our faith. And prayer is how we commune with God as Christians, right? So Jesus teaches us how to do that, right? In a God-word, faithful, dependent, forgiving of others kind of way. We've been squeezing that tomato for many weeks. Today, it's fasting. And for sure, I think we should talk about like classical fasting, intentionally going without food for religious purposes. But like the other two, this is a representative category. It represents, I think, the ways we intentionally discipline our bodies for godliness. So you you could think of these three this way. And uh, a guy named A.W. Pink, a theologian, pastor, he wrote it like this. He says, uh, it's how we relate to others, how we relate to God, and even how we relate to ourselves and our own bodies. How we do that as Christians. Fasting is what we're talking about this morning. And I think there are many ways this subject and this passage is relevant for us today. Let me just name a few before we really dig in. First, I think it's easy to be tugged about by our cravings and our desires. Food especially. No one, no one talks about the sin of gluttony anymore. No one mentions it. Most treat it like a respectable sin. We have to confront our gluttony though. It's idolatry. There are no respectable forms of idolatry. We have to confront gluttony. Fasting can be a help in that. Second, I think this applies to many different aspects of our lives. We should see how this relates, not just to our physical appetites for food, but really to all of our appetites. I think there's truth here about how we handle things like smartphones and social media and entertainment and even like physical exercise. Third, and right to the point of this passage, I think this passage is relevant as a warning to keep us from being on the path of pride and self-righteousness. This should keep us from merely dressing up as Christians, but actively living out our faith each day in secret before God, between us and God, relying on him for our righteousness and not on mere external things, things that other people can see, but on the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So that's where we're going with this. And my prayer is that the Lord would use it in your life in a similar way to how he's been using it in my life this week as I've been digging into this. You know, the, the Sermon on the Mount is like an excavator. It's like Jesus is taking this big earth mover into our hearts and he's moving out things that need moving. And we need to let him do that, to allow him to excavate our hearts this morning for his glory and really for our good. So let's begin by thinking about fasting and the, the actual act of going without food for a time for spiritual or religious purposes. What does the New Testament teach about fasting? There seems to be two ways the Bible normally teaches things to us. One is by precept, like teaching us principles, and the other is by practice, teaching us by example, how to do things. We see things that are done in the scriptures. As far as precepts go, apart from this passage, the New Testament doesn't teach many precepts about fasting. The Bible does not teach, for example, how often a Christian should fast. There's no direct commandment, at all in the New Testament for Christians to fast. No wonder I've never heard a good sermon about fasting. Maybe you haven't either. Maybe you will say at the end of today that you still haven't. <laughs> it's, there's no direct commandment in the scriptures about fasting. The Greek word for fast or fasting occurs in the New Testament only 20 times. 18 of those times are in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John doesn't even mention it. It's not in the Gospel of John. And then twice in Acts. We, we don't see fasting in any of the epistles of Paul or Peter or John. It doesn't come up in the book of Hebrews. It doesn't come up in the Revelation. I think at the least, that ought to give us pause at the overemphasis that some traditions and some Christian writers place on fasting. My view is that we should be wary of emphasizing something more than the Bible does. I think that ought to be like as Bible people, we want to emphasize things in in proper measure. And clearly the New Testament doesn't emphasize fasting. There are a few precepts about fasting taught to us. So so does does that lack of precepts mean that Christians shouldn't fast? And I don't think it means that. And mostly because the Bible does demonstrate the practice of fasting. So there are There's practice. There might not be very many precepts, but there is practice. There are several examples of fasting in the New Testament, the most important of which is Jesus. Jesus fasted. I mean, you want an example? Jesus fasted. Uh, He went for an extended time before his temptation back in Matthew 4. 40 days, fasting. If Jesus found something like fasting helpful and necessary for his life, his spiritual life, we should be very slow to discount it. And its value. And another example of fasting is in the early church. In Acts 13, we see that the disciples fasted, and it seems to be connected, you know, connected to that fasting. They needed to make a decision, and God, they, they did this. They wanted to pray, they wanted to hear from the Lord, and so they fasted. There's that example. And then there's the example of church history. It's hard to discount the value of fasting in light of the fact that Christians throughout church history have practiced fasting and, and found it helpful. And last but not least, there's, there's the language of practice in our passage. If you look at this, Jesus did not, does not say if you happen to decide to fast, he says when you fast, do you see? Just like when you give, when you pray, there's an assumption that you're going to do this. There's the assumption of the practice of fasting. So when you put all that together, the precepts and the practice of fasting, I I think the balanced way to approach this is that fasting ought to be, it's an appropriate part of the Christian life. It ought to be a part of the Christian life from time to time, though we as Christians should not emphasize it more than the Bible does or mandate it. There are some clear benefits to fasting and we should take advantage of them from time to time let's, let's just think about the benefits Okay, what are the benefits of fasting first I think fasting helps us not to be controlled by our cravings we, we, we stop eating for a while and that helps us to not be just dragged along by our appetite we, we don't live for lunch we live for Christ fasting can help us not idolize our bellies In Philippians 3, Paul gives a pretty strong warning about people who set their minds on earthly things. Listen to Philippians 3, 18 through 19. It says, For many, of whom I have often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. It's not a stretch, if you've studied Philippians, to conclude that these people against whom Paul is warning, are professing Christians. But clearly, they did not love the true gospel. And the net effect of following them would have been to leave the cross of Christ for some good works religion. But note, in his condemnation, he says, their God is their belly. They were led about in this life by their appetites and by their cravings. Fasting is one way to keep our appetites in check and prevent our bellies from becoming God. Second, Fasting helps us to remember that we do not live on bread alone. It's good to stop eating a while so that we can gain a better perspective on our own needs, our physical, temporal needs, and our spiritual, eternal needs. Food is certainly a need we have as people, but food is not our ultimate need. It's not anyone's ultimate need. Jesus is our ultimate need. You can go through this world well-fed, never missing a meal, and then be hungry forever outside of Christ. Or you can go through this world barely getting enough meals for the day, barely getting enough calories all of your life and live satisfied forever in Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate need. Hunger in that sense, I think, is, is kind of like a, a shadow or an illustration. It shows us that we are needy and need something else outside of us to satisfy that need. We need something to survive outside of us, namely food. And that's what sustains us in our physical state. And spiritually, in a much bigger sense, are we not hungry and desperate for something else or someone else outside of us to meet the greatest hunger we could possibly have, the the pangs that every human being feels. Jesus talked like that. Using food as an illustration of him coming to meet and satisfy our eternal hearts, our hungry hearts forever. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Fasting from physical food has the desired effect of helping us see what or or who we really need. Jesus is the one we need. He died on the cross in our place. He rose again triumphantly over death to be the bread that satisfies our hunger forever. Fasting from something we need to meet a temporal need helps us to see our eternal need and to whom we go to satisfy that need. Third, fasting helps us be less distracted. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Do you remember that if you were here? Um, I'm sure that if you were here by now, you have bought that book and read it cover to cover, just like I suggested that you do, right? Um, Anyway, it's a great book, Screwtape Letters. You should read it. Uh, As I said a few weeks ago, the premise of this book is ingenious. A senior tempter is writing instructions and advice to a junior tempter. These demons, you know, one uncle demon, writing to his nephew demon. And he's telling them how to sway people away from God. He's teaching them. It's a lesson kind of in reverse fashion for us as Christians. Uh, Teaching us the subtle tactics our enemy uses to divert our attention and our hearts away from God. You read it and you're like, oh, I don't want to be gullible to his devices. One of my favorite parts of the book shows how a clever tempter had some success. The patient, the man, was on the verge of seriously considering the things of God. He's like working through, like, what does this mean for my life kind of questions? What, is, what does this truth about God mean for me? He's working them through, thinking them through. And instead of directly refuting those thoughts, you know, like whispering a, like a, a counter thought in the man's ear, the tempter simply planted a different thought altogether. He said, it's time for lunch. And the man, the patient decided he'd go make a sandwich and he would come back to these important thoughts after his lunch. But he didn't come back to those questions that would have changed his life. Food distracted him. I don't know if that's exactly the way our spiritual enemy operates, but I do know how distracted from God we can become because of things like food, because of our physical appetites. I know how I can be distracted from the things of God. Fasting for me has been a way to check that. Fourth, fasting allows, I'm going through some benefits. The fourth benefit is that fasting allows for some focused time in prayer. Taking the time you would normally eat lunch and getting alone with God. And that's a great way to help focus your praying and seeking God's will for you. In times of tragedy, for example, many people fast and they fast so that they can pray with focus on God, to God. So there are at least those four helpful benefits of fasting. They're they're, they're more likely, but they're enough for me to want to pursue this from time to time. I don't want to be dragged around by my appetites or controlled by my cravings. I need to be reminded that I don't live on bread alone. I don't want to be distracted from God by food. And from time to time, I need to focus in prayer and fasting is helpful for all of those things. Of course, there are there are a lot of extended application we could glean from the idea of fasting that, that can translate to other areas of our life and have similar benefits. Many of us are less dragged about by physical appetites, like for a burrito, than we are for things like social media or smartphones. And I think resting from those things can have similar benefits as fasting from physical food. My opinion, and, and listen, the opinions of Christian leaders on this varies, so just take it for what it's worth. But my opinion is that fasting from things like smartphones and social medias or things we love to do in this life, things like dining out or horseback riding or hunting, can be very helpful for our Christian lives. And it seems to me to at least it's wise for us to at least nod at those things as we consider fasting. I don't want to be controlled by any of my appetites. John Calvin said that our hearts, our hearts are like a, like a idol making factory. I know that to be true in my own life. I can make an idol out of anything. And I, we cannot afford in this life to make, to let idols like food or hobbies or toys sway us from God. I don't want to be controlled by my appetites. I want to be controlled by God and fasting can help me to that end. Those are good reasons to fast. Now let's talk about a great big reason not to fast or a bad reason for fasting. And it goes right to the, it's a horrible motivation for fasting. It goes right to the heart of this passage. Verse 16 says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You see, these hypocrites weren't primarily motivated. If you remember, the word hypocrites means actor, really. These guys who are play acting. They weren't primarily motivated to fast so that they would draw closer in their relationship to God. They were motivated by the desire to look spiritual to other people. And so they dressed the part. They didn't wash their face. They just looked gloomy. I'm fasting today. Look at me. They dress like pious, Godward people. And you could wonder, I mean, I know that you just think about that and you think, I never do that. Like, I never, I never fast and don't wash my face. I wash my face every day. So how is this relevant? But it's so relevant to our Christian lives. There, there are so many for whom the Christian life is but a game. And I don't mean that they don't take it very seriously. I think they're, many are, they, they take it as a game and they're deadly serious about that game. It, it's a game to them the way that football Or wrestling or races are games to college athletes. They're serious, a college athlete is serious about those games. They seriously want to win. They are competing to win against other people, and that's right in sports. The Christian life, though, is no game. It's not a game like that. Many compete in the Christian life with the aim to look as if they are the most spiritual, or the most pious, or the most generous. The winner is the one who, who prays the most spiritually sounding prayers or is known as the one who gives the most or takes on the most glum looking faces while they fast. What motivates a person to do, to, 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 to compete like that? What, what does? What motivates us to act like that? I, I think part of it is that we, we think in the weirdness of the way that we process things, we think that actually makes us spiritual. In our minds, if we perform better than others, we must be better than others and therefore we must be right with God. Jesus taught us an insightful parable that helps us see what that kind of competition Christianity looks like. Turn, turn with me, if you will, to Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke eighteen nine says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Do you see that little process going on there? And here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What this Pharisee was doing and why he was doing it. I mean, it's really clear. He trusted in himself and his good deeds, and wow, what a great costume he wore. In this, it was a way better costume than the costume of this tax collector that was next to him. He fasts twice a week, he ties like it's nobody's business. And sadly, he remained unjustified in his sin. That's what happens when we gauge our righteousness by how we stack up against others. The Pharisee The Pharisee's works were just a costume which he wore to compare himself with others and to exalt himself above them, even in his praying, even in his praying. It was all virtue signaling, and that's exactly the opposite of believing the gospel. Virtue signaling and believing the gospel are not compatible. The reason we don't parade our righteousness when we understand the gospel is because we know and believe that our righteousness does not come from us, but from the one who died on the cross for us. And we know that we would be dead if Jesus had not risen from the grave, conquering death. I have nothing in me that allows me to boast. My only boast is Jesus. Jesus died for me. He died in my place and in him and in him alone, I am made righteous before God. He is my boast. No more virtue signaling. I I don't need to post things on social media so that you will think I'm good. There's so much of that these days. You know, one big contribution from COVID-19 is the exposure of all our virtue signaling hearts The pandemic was like a virtue signaling, like, we're all stuck at home, right? And so all we did was virtue signal. I'm more loving than you because I wear a mask. Or I'm more bold and fearless in my faith and unswayed by the world's opinion because I don't wear a mask. The posture was the same, no matter how we framed it. It, was, it, it. it strikes right at the human, right at our human hearts. I must be good because in this way or that way, I am better than you. More loving, more faithful, more pious. Look at me. I fast twice a week. Friends, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We should take that to heart. There are real benefits to spiritual discipline when it is motivated by a heart that wants to grow close to our Lord Jesus Christ. Real reward. Fasting can be a part of that. The father sees in secret. He sees right through the culture, the the, the curated avatars. He sees right through the posturing. He sees the heart. And he rewards in a genuine way. Jesus is urging us not to do what we do for accolades or for the rewards of others, or so that, for the sport of it, so that some people will, will feel or see, think that we are spiritual, and will outshine them, and feel righteous because of it. Jesus is teaching us to do what we do for the reward that comes from the Father in heaven. So I just want to encourage you to take this to heart. There are good reasons to practice fasting. You might want to try it whether that's straight up fasting for food for a day or two or for a couple of meals or whether that's giving up something else that's come close to capturing your heart or dragging you about. Fasting can be helpful as we practice it for those reasons, but let's hear this warning and not in any area of our Christian lives don a costume of righteousness. Candy from your neighbor might be an okay motivation for wearing a costume. Your standing before God is not looking spiritual for before others is not. And it's all silly, right? What does it matter what other people think of you? What if they think you're good, but you're not? What if all of the world, like everybody, looks at you and thinks, good. But the God of heaven looks at you and thinks, you've broken my law in word, in deed, and in thought. All of a sudden, the opinion of the world matters not when we stand before the judge of all righteousness who doesn't see like we see, just appearances, but who sees the heart. The only way that you or I can be truly right before that God, the one who sees like that, is by faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he has done on the cross for you. That's the only way anybody will stand before God with their head held high and their confidence set in the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Jesus gives us his righteousness. He takes our sin to himself. He literally makes us righteous before God and takes our sin on his shoulders. That's the gospel. And the more you understand that, And the more that you believe it, the more that it really lands in your heart, the less boasting about your righteousness you'll do. (coughs) The more we believe the gospel, the more humble we are. Because we know that our only boast is Christ. He has made us righteous. And whether or not you feel that righteousness, let that confidence be your only confidence today. Not how well you compete. But how powerful and how sufficient the work of Christ is. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Let's pray. Father, as we consider what it means to live out this Christian life and how to discipline our lives for godliness, Lord, I pray that you will purge from our hearts motivations like trying to appear good before men. Motivations like trying to earn our favor with you. And may our motivation simply be, we love you. You have died for us. You have given us hope. You have redeemed us from death. You have reconciled us through Christ. And we want to live that out. We want to to honor you with our bodies. We want to honor you with our giving. We want to pray rightly to you because we love you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to expose the ways that we stand on our own righteousness, the ways that we just hold our head up high because of what we do and not because of what Christ has done. And Lord, may our confidence increasingly be that Jesus has died for us and we live in him and through him and for him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.